So this evening, we're beginning our journey through these 12 links of dependent arising, um, as Gil was explaining last night. And it's called arising because each one arises um, dependent on the previous one, so that kind of the energy builds through the path leading to liberation and for really knowing freedom by the end of it. And the 12 links of dependent origination are the ones that where we're caught in that cycle that keeps perpetuating suffering, that kind of compulsive involvement in holding on. And the Buddha said, one who sees dependent arising sees the Dharma. And one who sees the Dharma sees dependent arising. It's this complete understanding of the entire teaching as we go through these links. And he also said, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the cessation of suffering. And so that's really this whole little piece that we'll be teaching, suffering and the ending of suffering, that completion um, and that moves us into liberation. The thing about suffering is it motivates us to do something about it, whether what we do is skillful or unskillful. There's that motivation to do. And we're neurobiologically wired to move away from discomfort and towards pleasant. That's just this basic biological thing, this constant conditioned movement away from unpleasant and towards pleasant. And it's very difficult to learn to tolerate discomfort, to be with suffering rather than to escape it in some way. And often I've found in my life, and many of us do, we contract against something that's pleasant, however minor it is, and maybe little, leave a little window open to reach out and grab something pleasant to, to pull in. It's just an, a natural tendency to do that. And the problem is it keeps us in that loop. Even when we are being more skillful in our ways to work with suffering. Sometimes, for example, we might be offering kindness of some sort to ourselves or to another who's caught in um, a self-harming pattern. We're being kind, we're being non-judgmental, we're being tolerant. And that's helpful, but it doesn't lead to resolving the causes. And because of that, the patterns keep repeating. So we need to be addressing the causes as well as a kind of band-aid approach, even though that's helpful. Because it's only through understanding the suffering and being with it that liberation is possible. So the sequence of liberative dependent arising or dependent origination begins with suffering, being able to be with and tolerate it deeply understand it. And the first noble truth is about embracing, fully embracing this, embracing life fully. It's coming to term with what's happening in our life right now as it actually is. Being able to say, yes, this is how it is. Even if it's very unpleasant, this is actually how it is right now so that we can be with life fully through the moments of joy and the moments that are unpleasant. We're not shutting anything out. So this, in a way, dukkha is life in its totality. It's just that being with everything, not shutting anything out. And we've all, you've all heard and we've all talked about how as we explore suffering more, we see that the cause is clinging, holding on, wanting the past to, the, the past isn't going to change. We're holding on to a past that can't change or to a future that isn't here yet or to be a, a present staying the same, staying the way we want it. 
and these changing conditions we don't have control over, and yet we really want to. We're trying to make certain what is inevitably uncertain. And the mind responds by projecting and grasping and struggling in some way to hold on to and try and fix our experience. And the poor ego is never going to find stability, no matter how much it tries to figure things out and fix things. They're always going to be changing. And we cling to anything. We cling to negative ideas about ourselves, even when they're really painful. And we, you, you know how we do that. It's painful. And we often, the Pali word is tanha, and that's usually translated as craving or thirst. But it can also mean reactivity, because it, it's not just about being attached, it's also about all the ways we resist, the ill will, the fear, the pushing away. It's referring to this whole push-pull that we have of being unable to be with experience. So really, all the hindrances, whether it's delusion or desire or aversion or falling asleep in life, all those forms are, are really expressed by this inability to accept how things are. That's really what it amounts to inability of the mind to accommodate change. The more we try and make it my way, the more anxious we get. And the more we allow it to be how it is, even if it's unpleasant, the more we can find peace, even though that seems contradictory. When we're not caught in reactivity, the mind naturally calms down. It's not struggling and resisting. If it, what it means is we pause, we take care of our reactivity, then we can see more clearly and we can act from that place. So it doesn't mean not acting, it just means not reacting, but more a response. And what matters is not just what causes the reactivity, but can we let the reactivity go? Can we release it? In other words, can we be unreactive to our reactivity? Can we let the reactivity come and go? But it's very seductive. It's so seductive. It's really hard not to buy in. And even if it's unpleasant, we want to pick it up. We get we get seduced into picking things up because of the charge. It's really hard. And that's why often um, people describe this spiral of dependent arising as having like a gravitational pull <laughs> that enables us to be pulled out of reactivity. So these qualities that we'll be describing build a force that can help propel us out of the seduction of these forces that are so difficult to resist. Ajahn Chah has um, a lovely example. Um, someone described being with Ajahn Chah and they were walking al along a trail. Ajahn Chah is one of the most wonderful Thai forest masters. Um, he was a teacher for many of the people in our tradition that came back to the West. And he was walking along with some students and he pointed to a huge heavy boulder. And he said, is that boulder heavy? And of course they all said, yes, it's really heavy. And he just said, not if you don't pick it up. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's, <laughs> it's not picking them up that's really, and it's so seductive. Something comes into your mind when you're sitting and you know it's not leading in a useful direction, but it's compelling to pick it up. And we do, we get seduced. So our meditation practice helps us find a relationship that is um, 
is easier, that doesn't move us into suffering, that doesn't compound the suffering. We build, it's a companion for us while we're being with suffering so that we don't add to it and further it. As our concentration builds, we're able to be with things more. We're able to um, relax a little bit and the attachments weaken and then we can allow things to come and go. And what we see is that suffering is like a rising moment to moment. Each time we react to something, there's a little bit more. And we can actually feel it building as our mindfulness grows. And we can see that at each point, there's a choice point. If I continue with this thought pattern, it's going to feel worse. But if we don't see the choice points, we don't have the choice to let it go. It keeps going. Um, when I was um, on my way down here, um, I, uh, there was a stopover in Seattle, and I didn't have very much time. And so we, we, you know, we get on the flight, it's a little bit late, it arrives, um, it arrives just, the right flight arrives in, in um, Seattle just in time. But then, it, there's no gate for the plane. So it doesn't, we can't get off. And I'm sitting there, and the minutes are going by, and my flight is, um, boarding time has already passed. Now it's 20 minutes before the flight leaves, and I can feel my body getting tenser. I can feel that leaning forward and that movement. And even though I know my getting tense and looking at my watch has no, <laughs> absolutely no positive <laughs> benefit at all, I really had to watch that. I was laughing at myself. You know, am I going to look or not? So there was a possibility with being mindful of cutting what that building of anxiety and suffering. And I could relax. What's going to happen will happen. If I miss the flight, I'll just have to call Gil and let him know, or whatever. But it's so easy to see how if we're not paying attention, we get caught in these things. And, I, and the, we did make the flight. I had to run, but we made it. And it would have been half an hour of unnecessary dukkha. <laughs> so we're afraid of what might happen. So it's a chance while we're here to explore for ourselves. If you're noticing a moment of suffering, even right now, maybe you're physically uncomfortable, or maybe you're bored, or whatever it is, to notice, am I resisting? Am I adding to it with some story? Am I fueling the suffering, or can I just let whatever is uncomfortable be and allow it to pass through? How am I relating to it? So while we're here, it's every moment is a chance to see because there are many moments of unpleasant throughout a day. How am I relating to this? What am I doing that's increasing or releasing? It's a beautiful chance to experiment. We have a societal aversion to suffering. Reach for pleasant. Don't let yourself feel unpleasant. Go for the pleasant. Don't let yourself have feelings. They're not good. There's little support to tolerate it. And we think it's bad to allow it and that we should get rid of it. And that our practice is about getting rid of suffering rather than being with. Norman Fisher, um, who's a wonderful Zen teacher, um, had a lovely story recently. A very dear friend of his and colleague died. And he was talking about allowing the grief. And he said, we think we're trying to get rid of suffering, but I want more suffering. I want to feel more suffering of the people who are suffering everywhere. I want to feel that suffering more, care about it more, and do something about it more. That's my commitment 
to Alan, that was his friend, and to myself. To let the suffering keep us connected to the world. To learn to be with it. Because there's so much in the world that we can't fix. That was fixable. <laughs> For now. <laughs> but it is hard to be with the suffering in the world. But the Buddha said, it is possible. If it wasn't possible, I wouldn't tell you. It's possible to be with it and to be free. And when we have moments of being able to be with something really difficult, a fear, a pain, a panicking moment, however small, it leads to a small moment of faith. And that leads to another moment of being able to be with it. We're watering seeds of faith. And then we begin to have faith in the Dharma and faith in our own capacity and we build trust. I shouldn't wave my arms around. So suffering impels us to seek a way to liberation. And it's also the supporting condition for faith. Faith is the link that transforms suffering into liberation. And that's what we'll be continuing with for the rest of today and tomorrow. So the Pali word is sada, and it can translate as trust, as conviction, as confidence, and also as hospitality, making room for however difficult things are. Even the most difficult experience with faith we can be with. And it's essential ingredient in the spiritual path. It's the beginning initiating factor of the five spiritual faculties of faith. <laughs> that this is workable. Faith, mindfulness, concentration, and energy and wisdom that support our journey in awakening. And it's both the initial inspiration in our practice and also it supports the continuing of our practice when things get difficult or when we just lose it altogether. It's faith that helps us begin again. So it's really important we need the initial faith, the initial trust to begin our practice. To believe that it is possible that a, this is a path that can lead us to liberation. And that it's possible for me to do that. So it's not a belief or a choice, but more a way of understanding. More an openness to possibility that there's something beyond our usual desires and fears, something that's bigger than us, that will guide or move us to freedom, to possibility. Sometimes it can take a leap, a leap of faith into the unknown to think that this is possible for me, pushing our own boundaries. We see someone else, we hear some teaching, and we believe it's possible for me too. I can do it. I can take this step. My mind can be awakened from delusion. I can let go a little bit. And we can let go of our limiting beliefs, belief about ourselves, each other, and the world. Um, um, I had an experience of taking a leap to the edge of my own boundaries a few months ago. I had uh, I was on a holiday and I'd never paddleboard, done paddleboarding before. And there was a small group of people and they were all younger than me and we were going paddleboarding. And at first I 
all the beliefs, I can't do this, I'm too old, I don't have enough core strength. You know, all these voices were telling me, this is not possible. And I saw them all. But okay, we'll, we'll go for it anyway. And to my surprise, by letting go of those voices, you know, I was able to do it a little bit. And for a while, I was standing up and off I go and I'm paddling along and the waves get bigger and some kayak people go by in kayaks and who know me and they say, yay, Adrian. And of course, I immediately fall off. (laughs) 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 And um, as I'm coming to the surface again, I'm realizing, oh, there's, there's faith in just being. It doesn't matter. There's faith in just value. I don't have to succeed. Because there was no embarrassment. There was just a delight in discovering the faith. It doesn't matter whether I get it right or not, or can do it or not. It is just faith in being. And so that's felt like something from my practice that really enabled me to enjoy life more fully and just go to a limit of that small boundary. And faith is like that, that we have the resources, we have the self-efficacy to practice. It's not something that we have to get from outside or something that's coming from some external force. It's from within us. To have faith in the Buddha's awakening means having this faith in our own potential, that this this path and we can follow it. It's up to us. Nobody else can do it, but our actions can lead to the possibilities of the ending of suffering. It's what we do. Initially, we, we often need someone to show us the way, a teacher, a teaching, an inspiration, something, when we're having a difficult time that, that is outside of ourselves. But once that initial faith is waken, has been awakened, it's from its internal. When I first came to the Dharma, I was in a place of a lot of suffering. I was a young physician, and I'd been um, traveling overseas some, and also working in an inner city clinic, and seeing a lot of suffering in the world, and trying to fix it. And of course, overwhelmed that I couldn't. I could never have done enough. And especially being overseas and seeing the inequality, the poverty, the illness that wasn't curable, and the resources that were not available. And when I came back, I was really in a place of despair and overwhelm. And I would have dreams of tidal waves (laughs) and, and just really felt overwhelmed. And I came across a book called How Can I Help, that some of you may remember, written by Ram Dass. And I read it, and there was something in there that was inspiring to me. And I wrote to Ram Dass, never expecting he would reply, but he did. And he happened to be coming to Vancouver to give a talk, and it suggested I go. And so I went to the talk, and I recognized him as I was coming in, and he walked towards me, never having seen me, and took my hands and said, you must be Adrian. I was completely taken aback. <laughs> my suffering must have been written over my face. But what, for whatever, this short conversation that we had um, awoke that faith in me. It's possible to be with suffering, and what I've been doing is adding to it. And I'm causing more suffering by the ways that I'm being with it. This is not leading to healing. And there is a way of doing this differently. And so that was the first seed for me. I was able to see that I was being, the way I was being with it, was resisting and struggling with. And um, I was suffering with in a way that was um, not helping me or anyone else. But by tolerating the discomfort, I learned to see that the unpleasant passes. And it's not mine. It doesn't belong to the other person either. There's great difficulty in this pain, 
but it's not mine, it's not there, it's theirs, it's just suffering. And it can pass. Then I was able to be with it and to ride the waves of it. And each small moment I was with it was a seed. Another moment of faith built another seed. Being with it watered it, and so it grew. And I also saw that in the midst of pain and sorrow, there can also be beauty and joy and connection. And I was able to see what was beautiful in others and what was amazing and funny and humorous. I didn't just see them as their pain. And so that built faith for me and that yes, this is a path can, that can go to healing for many of us. When there was a possibility of allowing the faith, and I mean the, the grief and the fear could move through. And then there was space for joy and beauty because the energy wasn't all tied up in these difficult states and it got to move through. Then there was capacity for love and connection. And that was very inspiring for me. And what I saw was that it really requires presence, really being present with. And that as we practice mindfulness, that that develops naturally. The faith develops naturally. We plant the seeds of faith and mindfulness waters them. Sometimes faith is compared to the hand that is needed to take hold of the beneficial practices, mindfulness and kindness, and to a seed that's the vitalizing germ for the growth, these are Bhikkhu Bodhi's words, the vitalizing germ for the growth of higher virtues, patience and tolerance and wisdom. So it's both a hand and a seed that support our practice. I think it's useful to talk about what blocks faith because so often that's what happens in our lives. Doubt is the cognitive opposite of faith and it really is um, a big hindrance in our practice. We doubt that liberation is possible. We hold back. We can think that liberation isn't possible for me. And so we'll practice so that we get some stress relief, but because we don't really believe that liberation could happen to me, we don't go deeper. It wouldn't happen to me anyway. And so that's a, that's a doubt is really um, stopping us. It's, that's a big doubt. And there can be little doubts in our practice. I can't get concentrated. I'll never be able to deal with the hindrances. <laughs> they always come back for me. And we can have little doubts throughout the day in our practice, in our capacity to stay awake for a whole sitting. <laughs> Whatever it is, these little doubts that are so limiting. Um, and they limit our belief. They, these limiting beliefs hinder our practice, they affect how we are in the world, and it's painful. Sometimes I'll say at the beginning of a day of practice, may I be free from limiting beliefs. And it's really helpful. And then if during the day I notice I'm caught in some limiting belief, I remember, ah, I made that intention to be free from limiting beliefs. Is that really true? And to let it go. Because then we're open to possibility. And any time there's a limiting belief and a doubt about, about ourselves, the door gets shut on possibility. And so it's helpful to just recognize when we're caught in a limiting belief, whether it's a small one or a big one. Healthy doubt can be an important part of our practice too. Stephen Batchelor talks about having the faith to doubt because it's helpful 
to really acknowledge sometimes something, this isn't the right practice, a particular practice isn't the right practice for us at certain times. And we can trust our inner wisdom. Well, maybe this doubt is useful. Maybe really getting deeply absorbed isn't so useful in my daily life. (laughs) I'm ignoring my family. (laughs) Maybe that's a skillful doubt to have. Is there a wiser way I could practice? But, and if we have faith, we can trust our intuition in that moment. And then we see, oh, did that work out? So there's skillful ways that we can work with doubt, and faith can show us which is skillful and which isn't. So we're not using blind faith, we're combining faith and wisdom, which is skillful. Another block for um, our practice, a block to faith, is fear. Sometimes we're afraid we can't handle difficult emotions. We doubt our capacity or afraid that we don't have the capacity to be with anger or fear or we're, we fear the fear or um, pain or whatever it is that's happening. We're afraid of we hold back from fully immersing ourselves because we're afraid to let go. We're afraid to fall apart. We're afraid of what might happen. And it takes courage and kindness to be with ourselves when we're afraid. And loving kindness can really help support us in our practice. It's useful to explore what is it that blocks my faith And you might notice that the next few days. If you find yourself caught, what's blocking my faith? What's causing suffering? To see how those two are connected. Because faith encourages to go beyond doubt and beyond fear. It's an important inspirational part of our practice, giving us the energy to keep going, to keep going deeper. So I'd like to talk a little bit about the things that can inspire practice and that can bring faith and help us work with these difficult states. Because we all have periods of doubt and we need to have something that we can fall back on and remember when that happens to establish um, these areas of faith in our lives. So some of the sources of faith are just taking, having faith in the Buddha, faith in awakening. Um, and it doesn't require an object, it's more of um, just faith in being. And it actually comes naturally from our practice, and we don't even realize sometimes that we're building faith. We, we don't know until later that that's been happening as a result of our practice. We haven't been able to see the fruit of our practice. And this happens to people who've been practicing a while. They don't realize that actually it's been building. Um, someone I know um, recently came back after, to me after a period of not practicing for a while. And she told me this story how um, she'd suddenly been diagnosed um, with a brain tumor, and it was this it was a benign tumor, but it was very, very close to a major artery in her brain, really close, too close for them to do surgery. It was dangerous, and it could the tumor, if it grew, could burst that artery, and that would kill her and it was that close, and it might have been like that for a long time and not done any harm. There was no way of knowing. And so she felt like, she said, it was like I was, I was falling off um, a tower. <laughs> I was falling off a skyscraper. She, that's how it felt, like I was falling off a skyscraper. I could die at any time. She said, but the amazing thing was, it was like falling off and falling into the Dharma. And the Dharma was supporting me. And she said, I had no idea that was in there, that the Dharma was there to support me. She practiced many years and then had some years without practice. There it was. 
and her faith in the Dharma was there. The Dharma was there to catch her. And so that can, that can happen. We cannot know that it's building. I find that taking refuge is an important part of our practice and that the devotional aspects of practice are really helpful to be building along the way. And for some people, we, we don't connect with these at first. And I find it's helpful to remind us of those. The simple act of bowing. Some people, if you're new to practice, you may think, what's that about, this bowing? And it's not a bowing that's a bowing of unworthiness in some way. It's more really a bowing that is connecting us with the capacity to be awake. It's reflecting, letting go. Letting go, surrendering into the truth. Letting go of patterns of fear. Letting go of patterns of unworthiness. It's reflecting dignity. And it builds faith to me. When I do that, it reminds me of the possibility of being awake. And when I chant the refuges, it's a way of absorbing deeper, taking refuge, taking refuge in the Buddha. Yes, it's possible to be awake any moment, aligning with awareness, with awakefulness, any moment is possible. Bowing and connecting, taking refuge in the Dharma, in that yes, there's a path that's possible to follow. And even if we've forgotten it for a while, here it is to support us. The mindfulness, the compassion, the caring. And it leads to a, we can, the Dharma will support us through changing conditions. Whatever the conditions are, there it is. And it builds the ability to be with change. And then taking refuge in Sangha, that there's a community here that's supporting us. And an inner community. (laughs) We're taking refuge in our inner community. It doesn't have to be at war with itself. It's like taking refuge in the capacity for inner peace, as well as being supported by outer peace. I'm not just my thoughts. These thoughts that are going by, they're just stuff. When we take refuge in the Dharma, we remember that. Faith in just being. Faith in in a sense of worth that isn't dependent on the changing attributes of a self. As we get older, all those attributes change. The things that we relied on for our self-worth dissolve. (laughs) And when we have faith in the Dharma, in ourselves, we can be with that. I have a very dear friend who's practiced the Dharma for many years, and she's now in her 80s, and developed cognitive decline. And it happened over a period of time. First, memory loss and not able to do the things that she was so skilled at, and then gradually over time having to live in a facility and losing all those little places of independence. And she met it with grace. Yes, there was pain and loss around it, but she was able to be with, this is how it is. This is (laughs) the heavenly messengers (laughs) of the Dharma, old age and sickness and then death. But she was able to be with that with grace because of the capacity of taking refuge. And then we can take refuge in basic goodness and the goodness of others that can be really inspiring. I was um, traveling on a bus in Vancouver some maybe about a year ago and um, it was a full bus and this was an express bus out to the university. It only stopped at very few places and an elderly woman got on and she hadn't noticed it was the express bus and she needed to get off near the hospital um, at a place where there were no stops. And 
the bus driver, normally they just keep driving and, and they have their, their regulations. I stop when there's a stop. But he could see that it was raining. She was old and so forth. So he stopped. He didn't want her to walk. And he <coughs> let her out and directed her where to go. And, you know, I could go on for a long time, but there were similar times throughout the journey where he was really generous and open-hearted to someone. And people in the bus, you could feel the friendliness growing. So when I got off the bus, I stopped by him and I said, you know, you made my day. I really appreciate how you've been with everyone. And he looked at me and he said, thank you, you just made my day. <laughs> It's so great to have this recognized. And that was what Gil was talking about with the knowing the knowing. He felt his goodness known. And that expanded that feeling of delight for me and for him and for the other people on the bus. And so we need, and faith builds when we don't just walk by the beautiful qualities when we really take them in. There are amazing people out there, so many wonderful things that they're doing, and we want to take that in when we get so flooded with all the disgusting news that there is <laughs> and stories of corruption and negativity. So we need to open our eyes to the goodness and renew our faith that the, that capacity is there in everyone. Receiving love renews our faith. And I found the practice of metta so helpful to that. I was teaching a re metta retreat, and there was a woman on the retreat who was full of self-judgment and having a really terrible time and not being able to offer metta to herself. But she continued to practice, and by the end of the retreat, she came and she said, I just notice I'm not judging myself anymore. And she was, ah, the peace inside. And it was just those seeds of self-caring beginning to sprout, just by being in the environment, or even though she didn't think anything was happening, the surrounding metta and love was sinking in. And I found through metta practice and actually through chanting metta that it begins to embody itself deeper. It's a beautiful practice. And I've used that as a resort, a resource, <laughs> chanting metta in times of difficulty or when there's um, difficulties with faith. And I'll, I'll chant a, a brief little metta chant this evening because it really helps to just feel that sense of being supported. Even when you're feeling there's no possibility for love here, <laughs> you know, when you're in one of those states of hating everything. May I be held in kindness while I'm, while I'm full of hate. <laughs> you know, just adding that too. May I be held in kindness while these disgusting mind states are here. Just that little bit of support. Sometimes I've experienced doubt in myself as a teacher. What am I doing trying to share the Dharma? I should be completely, fully liberated. And I shouldn't be teaching if I'm not. You know, those doubts come up. And then I'll have precious moments with some of my students where I see how they're able to be with difficulties in their life with greater ease. There's less reactivity, there's more joy, and the, wi the wisdom blows me away. And I just feel inspired. And just really um, so much more humble and open to the possibility of transformation that there is for all of us. In small ways and in bigger ways, and faith in the Dharma is renewed again. So it's always possible to reconnect with it, even if it seems like its faith is very far away. And we can have compassion for our difficulties, faith that we don't have to follow the impulses of 
wanting and aversion and confusion, that we can follow the capacity for caring for ourselves and for caring for life. And as we practice, we experience that these beautiful qualities we've been talking about of patience and kindness and um, wisdom, generosity, start to get cultivated along with faith. They support faith, faith in turn supports them. And that we can have a deeper abiding faith and trust because of that. These qualities are growing. And we start to feel more buoyant and at ease and caring. Another small story, I was talking to a friend the other day who was very angry um, about some email that she'd received from someone, from some official. And she'd sort of angrily written this really snarky response. And then a moment of mindfulness arose, and she read what she wrote. (laughs) And then she just, oh, is this really in my heart? what I want from this situation? What will the impact of this be? Is that really what I want? And she pressed delete instead of send. And she felt so great. She said there was such delight that she'd been able to refrain from not following that initial impulse. And there was faith that, oh, I can be with difficulty and not give in sometimes. So we develop confidence in our capacity to be with difficulty. Sometimes we get really triggered and overwhelmed and swept away. And we can't generate faith. It seems impossible. That can happen. We feel there's nowhere to go, nothing to rely on, and I promise I will get this sorted out. And then there really is value in metta, a lot of value in metta, and just being there, being able to be metta's loving-kindness practice. As Tanisara, one of my colleague teacher says, we're training ourselves not to be terrorized by the mad mind. It's simply, oh, the mind's gone crazy right now. That's just how it is. Can I be with this, with kindness? The support of the heart to stay with this moment too. Can I be here with just this? Even just staying is an act of faith. Just that moment being with ourselves, not giving up on ourselves. Another of my friends, Irina Weissman, says, I'm here for you, honey, to herself. Um, And there are people I know who heard that one talk that she gave and still to this day tell themselves, I'm here for you, I'm here for you, honey. It just helps to know that mindfulness is a companion. We can be our own best friend. Mindfulness can be our best friend. Just to hang in for those really impossible moments. That we can meet the most difficult circumstances with faith. Sometimes when it seems impossible, it just feels like all we can do is be with waiting to see what will happen next. And T.S. Eliot says, the faith is in the waiting. Just being here and not knowing. There's, um, I think that this is something that um, Ramdas said in a conversation with the environmentalist John Seed. They're talking about climate change, and this is actually about three or four years ago. Nothing but a miracle would be any use at this time. Nothing but a miracle. And then they went on to say, waking up is possible. Appreciating the road of miracles that comprise human evolution can inspire faith. When you think about that, 
How did it happen that we came about after all the different possibilities in changes as life came to be, that there were human beings? That's a miracle in itself. Anything is possible. All we need to do is see the situation and wake up. It's important to remain open to the possibility of awakening for ourselves and all others. Faith in that vision gets us through the hard times. So just faith in possibility and being able to be with our own reactivity, our own particular reactivity with kindness, compassion and patience and resolve. So in conclusion, we can see that suffering can lead to further suffering. The ways we are with it can compound it. We can drown in hopelessness and despair. We can get caught in cycles of reactivity over and over. Or our suffering can lead to awakening. It can lead us to the possibility of faith moving in new possibilities, faith for ourselves, faith for each other, faith for the world, that it's possible. It can provoke interest and curiosity that there's a path. So we're inviting you to have faith in not knowing, to be able to let go a little bit. And we're cultivating of this practice of reconnecting with the breath. Each time there's a reconnection with the breath, we're letting go of something. We're already practicing letting go. Each time we come into the body and embody being here, we're cultivating presence, the presence to be with, the presence that enables us to be with difficulty. That's what our practice is doing as we continue. We don't know what will happen, but we're staying with. We're trusting that it's possible to respond to the fear or the doubt or the uncertainty. We're taking faith that that's possible. So Gil and I are inviting you to open to initial faith and trust, to see what will unfold for you this retreat to take refuge, to find out what's true for each of you. What is it that's true for me? This week is an exploration, an, an openness to possibility. And to think, what am I letting go into? What happens when I let go of the things I've been holding on to? And you might be surprised at what beautiful qualities will come forth. So, thank you for your attention, and I wish you faith and inspiration. <laughs>